poetry wins out because poetry asks you to trust, you know, some combination of head and gut, mind, body, soul. I just think it's one of those places. There's so many overlaps reading between the lines, but also reading the lines themselves. Poetry rewards that kind of thinking. So it does win out, but it does, it doesn't win out in the same kind of like glamorous, bombastic and ultimately violent way that Trump is wielding language right now. You just heard the voice of the American poet Terence Hayes, who is my guest on this second episode of How to Proceed. My name is Lynn Ullman, and together with the House of Literature in Oslo, I've created this podcast about writing, creativity, and the world we live in right now. When Norway went into semi-lockdown in March, I turned to literature and poetry for much-needed conversation and reflection. And one of the poets I turned to was Terence Hayes. In this episode, Hayes talks about intimacy and vulnerability, about his obsession with time, form, and order, and poetry as both weapon and refuge. Hayes has published six poetry collections. He has won a number of awards and lots of praise from critics. He is a former poetry editor of New York Times Magazine and currently a professor of English at New York University. Hayes' work is deeply original, innovative, playful, and urgent. His poetry is a complex layer of language and form, an investigation of identity and memory, race and violence, masculinity and vulnerability. In Hayes' own description, his primary model for his writing is music, to write a language as close as possible to music. Terence Hayes, welcome to the House of Literature. I am so proud and so happy and so grateful that you are here. Good to be here. I'm an admirer of your work. I have been for a long time, and I look forward to welcoming you in person. Uh, we all do, sometime in the future. I look forward to it. You know, our first guest was the Scottish writer Ali Smith, And in her last uh, quartet of novels, the seasonal novels, she has a wonderful character who always greets everyone he meets by saying, so what are you reading? Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, what are you reading, Terence Hayes? Well, I read poetry all the time. So how I know when I'm really busy is if I'm not getting to read novels. So right now, my busyness is trying to get a syllabus together to teach students in this crazy new world. So... When I'm not writing poems or reading poems, I'm mostly I'm thinking about that. So I recently had a memory of uh, an image from 100 Years of Solitude. So the next novel I read will be that one. You know what? You're the third person this week who talked about that novel and who wants to read this novel. So I, th this is a novel that we're starting to talk about again and wanting to read. Why do you think that is? Surreal times. <laughs> Maybe it's just the, you know, magic realism that we're all kind of experiencing. Is that how so you would describe know. our times, magic realism? Um, magic makes it sound a little too optimistic. There might be another word, dystopic realism or surreal realism. Um, magical makes it something else. I do think, though, um, there is something otherworldly about what's going on, so much so that We couldn't have imagined it for all of these years of writing zombie apocalypse novels and making movies about the end of the world. This still is such a surprise, which is a great thing about the human condition. You just never know what's going to be around the corner. <laughs> so I'm saying magic is too, probably has too much shine on it, but there is an element that is dreamlike, nightmarish, otherworldly about where we are right now. And where are we right now? I mean, what are you thinking of when you say that? Well, so first let me say, I feel like every year I have like a word, you know. So one year was like um, sincerity. Last year it was therapy. And this year it's intimacy. And it has been, you know, I usually don't know until it kind of emerges over a couple of months. So I didn't directly connect it immediately to the quarantine 
But it is because the question has become for me, how do you create a kind of intimate space um, digitally? How do you create a kind of, you know, if you're doing Zoom readings or Zoom interviews, if you are someone like myself who I mostly thrive in small groups, I, you know, anything more than 12, I, I, I can't really do um, unless I'm on the stage. But so I don't like parties. I don't like large groups. And my ideal is, you know, one-on-one, you know, quartets, that kind of thing, just so you can hear everybody and you can get somewhere in the conversation. So I say all that to you to say, obviously, I think right now we're at a moment where even a question of what intimacy looks like in the context of social distancing and quarantining um, is is going to shift. So we're at some kind of moment of tremendous change and shifts in America uh, I could even think about intimacy in terms of saying, like, even that question is such a local question for everybody. But if I gave you a political answer, I would say, I think the, the government, the political system, the policing system here in America is about to go through some kind of transformation. So there's one tangible example of kind of where we are, a moment of change. Do you see the moment of change as part dystopic, part hopeful, or do you see that there is, I mean, is there hope in that change? Uh-huh. <laughs> If uh, Donald Trump doesn't win in November, certainly. I was saying this to a friend just the other day, and we're constantly talking about the madness of things and looking for hope. And so I said to her, well, you know, if Biden wins, I was actually talking about the police. Uh, something's recently happened in Chicago. Um, it wasn't the same thing as the George Floyd scenario, but it went immediately to protest and looting and violence and there was like a drive-by shooting where some people were shooting at the cops and so i was like that's terrifying because it's also blurry in terms of like who are protesters and who are not um so we were just we were thinking about that and i said but i do believe if we had a different president people would have a bit more faith it wouldn't get fixed but it would be forward progress and then she shrugged and i said no listen to me now i'm trying to be hopeful here like this is all we got all we have is the election in this world right now. So we just, at least we can wait till that moment. The day after the election, if we want to freak out, we can. But So my attitude, how that connects to my students is to always just try to find some kind of like goal point or goal post or some sort of like optimism to look forward to, even in the midst of things. So I think of that as just problem solving. Um, I say that to my students. I actually said to my dad the other day, who's always so Uh, nervous when he's talking to me, you know, because I was like, you know, I'm not the smartest man. I'm like, man, what you talking about? You're the smartest dude I know. <laughs> is, so, that, is that why he's nervous? Because he thinks you're smarter? Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, I don't know how this will sound, but you know, a lot of people do. A lot of people think that I'm smarter than them. And I don't think that. What I think is intelligence is just problem solving. So what I said to my dad is like, oh, no, but you're really good at solving problems. And at the base, at the end of the day, that's all intelligence is about. So if you only have one solution to a problem, that's, you know, odds are it might work, it might not. So you're always looking for multiple solutions, which means that you have to look at any problem from multiple angles in order to get more than one solution. This is how Scrabble works. I mean, I, I'm a regular Scrabble player. So, you know, you can't just have the one word you're going to play because you don't know what the other person's going to play. So you always got to have a few more options to respond to. And that's sort of generally my attitude about the universe. And so I say here too, like um, right now we just got this one possible hope for a solution, you know? And so you're like, well, if that solution doesn't work, you know, we, just, we got a new problem to deal with. But right now we just got to cling to this one thing, which is like, let's hope that, you know, the election changes, at least the president and things will seem a lot better. Everything will seem a lot better after that. So how um, you mentioned intimacy and I'm thinking about you writing poems and about reading mm -hmm. and I've heard you in other interviews talk about when you read or even when you have conversations that you want to be in that state of anxiety and vulnerability mm -hmm. and for some reason I thought of that when you said intimacy I mean there's there's something very intimate about being anxious and vulnerable yeah and I, well, do you agree I do. I would just add present to that. Like there's a, it's like um, situational awareness is a, like a, a military term. Um, so I think of it in terms of like vulnerability, anxiety comes from just being alert because, you know, it is, this is the world. So you always want to be 
alert. It's like, uh, anyway, yeah, I could give multiple analogies across the animal kingdom about, you know, alertness. Um, Do. Talk about it. Uh, it's about like, you know, do dogs really sleep? They sleep while they're listening. Uh, monkeys sleep. I have a, at the end of the poem, Lightheads Guide to the Galaxy. This too is this question of always having some awareness of where you are. You've got to be observant. That's just the only way you're going to find these solutions we're talking about. When you spend your nights out on a limb, there's a chance you'll fall in your sleep, you know, um, so that the risk that comes with that kind of alertness or, or taking those kinds of risks, is it a, it is a thing I believe. Um, yeah. How about that? <laughs> you mentioned the military. You're from a military family, aren't you? Uh, it's a hodgepodge of things. Yeah. I mean, um, my dad, he's my stepdad. He married my mom when he, when I was, uh, four, he was in the military. So we, before that we lived in a project. She was a 16 year old with a kid when she met him, she was 20, but we still, the two of us still, still lived this in government housing. But when she married him, we moved in, you know, with the military barracks. So we were in Fort Bragg for a little while. That's where my little brother was born. Uh, we were in a couple of other places. But then he left. My mother got impatient. And so we went back to Columbia, South Carolina, the South where I'm from. And he traveled and really didn't come back to live with us. I mean, he, you know, he came in during between moving to different kinds of posts, um, but didn't live back with us until I graduated. I think I was 25 when he retired, you know. So that means essentially it was me, my brother and my mom from about the third grade. Um, so he was very much there and definitely uh, I don't, I never resented that he was gone um, because I felt like I could, you know, we felt like we could manage things and we knew that he was, you know, he loved this. Um, so I guess I'm saying, yeah, kind of a military family for a little while, but then we moved to suburbs and it was like, I was sort of like, not didn't have a dad again and played sports, that sort of thing. But for me, what I'll say about my personality, and I think this will still loop back to some of my answers to any questions you ask. Uh, that just meant that I was in a whole bunch of different circles. So I have to remind people sometimes about the military thing because I do have a sense of what order is. Uh, I think even with basketball, I was thinking about my kids the other day and how they both sort of stopped playing basketball early. And I was like, it's not because I want you to go to the NBA. It's just about like teams. Um, it's about like being coached. Um, it's about communication. It's about the notion of practice. So so there's that world, the jock world, the military world. Obviously, I, I was an artist from about the third grade. That was a whole other group of people. And I'm a loner. I'm a person who, with all of those different circles, a person who essentially likes to be by himself most. So I believe in adaptability. I believe in like fluid things. So all of those things do bring on vulnerability. Every new circle brings on vulnerability and anxiety. But being present in those circles um, is really how you manage how you manage them. I'm sounding like a professor here. <laughs> I'm going to stop talking like a professor. professor. No, I want you <laughs> to talk. True. No, no, please, please talk like a professor because I want you to, this is exactly what I'm interested in. And I wanted to ask about, you know, anxiety, vulnerability, awareness or attention. Yeah. Um, all weapons, of order, all weapons. All weapons, you said, because mm -hmm. I was going to say all part of writing. Yes, same, same answer. Yeah, that those things are... Um, strengths, um, because so few people believe that they're strengths. So for me, certainly, I wrote a line the other day, and I was thinking, uh, this is why people think I'm a confessional poet. You know, I, I, it's, I hadn't put it in a poem yet, but I'll tell you, the notion of the line was just, again, about my younger brother and remembering shared memories that we hadn't actually talked about. So not even all traumatic, but just like, it's just memories between siblings. And I was like, is that true for Across the family, it's not the same when you have a lover, like the memory is more present tense. But I was like, even in a family, there's things that are unspoken, some bad and some just not spoken. So I was like, next time I see my brother. But then I wanted to try to write something like that out. And in the midst of it, I just said to myself, you know, this is why people think I'm a professional poet. But I would say the vulnerability in that kind of question, because maybe it is dark stuff, but probably more more dark stuff than not. Um, when you think about the things that haven't been spoken between yourself and your brother, with me, it was some kind of like early sexual experience. Uh, and I was like, what if he remembers that, you know, me, him and somebody else, you know, we were super young and it wasn't like anything illegal or anything, but I just, we just never talked about it. So even saying that to you is like a kind of, you know, openness, I do believe is a kind of strength because we usually will 
share in a lot of these kinds of questions, um, if you believe what Baldwin said, which is art is about questions. So like, there's a question about, is it true that families have, every family still has a sort of unspoken history, shared but unspoken history between people. Um, and then I'll have to write some poem that sort of articulates a question like that at some point. <laughs> and did you start that poem with yeah. the one about the things that were unspoken with your brother? Yeah, yeah. Is I, that a poem in process? In Well, you know, I'm always writing poems at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I got some notes on it. And I kind of know what it is. But, you know, I have a poem that's in The New Yorker this week that I wrote for my son when he graduated from middle school uh, maybe three years ago. And I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to give you, a, you know, I don't live with him. He lives with his mother. So I traveled. It was just middle school graduation. I went to Pittsburgh and everybody came. Uh, my parents came. His sister came from college. Um, and my former in-laws, everybody's still cool. Former in-laws came. Obviously, his mother was there. And I was like, I wrote this poem for you. And I made them all listen to it. And I drew a picture and I gave it to them. And that was it. And I continued to work on it. I had worked on it for about a year before I gave it to him. I knew I was going to do it. This is what I do here. Um, and so I was like, it's your present. I told him how long I worked on it. And then I kept, I, I kept poking at it. So it was coming out. And the thing I was thinking about, I was like, I think it's different. It's been so long. I think it's a little different. The core of it is still the same. But I think the ending is different than what I gave him. And I said, I wonder how he'll feel about that. Like, if he'll feel like, is the, end, is the poem in the New Yorker better than the one I gave him? Or would it be like, I can't believe you changed my gift. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so that's to say, like, I, I, I don't think about time when I'm working on these things. I just, so even after, sometimes even poems that have been published, uh, even like the, the uh, American Sign for the New Year, a poem that was in the New Yorker also, I changed that one afterwards. So I just, it's one of the places where I don't have to worry about time because I'm typically so obsessed with time, like obsessively obsessed with time is probably how I describe myself. What does that mean <laughs> that you're obsessively obsessed with time? I just, I just think it's the only thing you can really count on. So it's the only thing you should pay attention to. So I just time everything. Uh, I time my sleep. Uh, you know, I wake, I wake up at a certain kind of time. I know how many hours time I walk. So I think about things in terms of time instead of distance. So if they say it's three miles, I'll be like, you mean like an hour? Um, I'm ne I don't, I'm never late. I, I would say like a person that's too early or a person's too late. Both of those are kind of the same opposite ends of the same spectrum. So I like to be early enough to like not sweat, if that makes sense, early enough to settle, but not early enough to unsettle the people who are expecting me. We, yeah. we are, so that's me. That's my relationship with time. <laughs> we are soulmates on this. Yeah. I, I am neurotically punctual and I have the exact my, same notion of not being too late. My father used to say to me, the only thing worse, my heart, than being too early is being too late. I, I'm with you. So I, I know the feeling. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, I'll, I'll take it one more. I mean, how deeply I think about this thing. So, you know, I'm, I watch the, I watch, uh, I mean, there's Tom Lord stuff all through the books, the Doctor Who stuff. Like, yeah. And what I think is like, really, the only power God really has over man is time like if you take away God's power over time you're just immortal <laughs> so I see it as again a kind of like spiritual question like if you can manage your time you get close it's a kind of godliness to like do it so if you're not managing it you're just like well man you're gonna be you're gonna be on your deathbed and saying I remember that hour where I was not productive I wish I got that hour back so I think about my time that way like it's it's all we got so you really trying to like do everything you can before the clock runs out you can't really waste much of it so so it's a joke my daughter recently was like dad time doesn't exist because of what's been going on and i said to her because it's a joke she's always tried to get under my skin which is one of the things you would say to me that makes me irritated anybody says there's no such thing as time so i said to her for the first time well you know it is a little bit broken i think time is broken right now it's on some sort of weird loopy schedule but it'll get back it'll 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 return um But anyway, <laughs> there you go. How old is your daughter? She's 20. I want to talk about American Sonnets for my past and future assassin, and I want you to read from it too. But can you tell me a little bit about the genesis and why you, why you wrote sonnets? Why sonnets? Why now? Um. I've always liked sonnets. Again, if I just go back to things I said earlier. So again, 
I'm surrounded by military Jews and jocks. Um, I'm writing in private. And the first people, I mean, my art teachers thought there was something going on, but my English teachers were, they surprised me when they would be saying to me, oh, you know, you have a skill because I was like, what is English? Like how, just from where I was from, I didn't even think of it as, well, the only thing you could do if you were good in English was be an English teacher, which is what I thought I would do. Um, ultimately, I thought in high school, I'll probably just be a high school English teacher. It was just the, the most that I knew. But the thing that I recall now is like liking Flannery O'Connor, even though there was all kinds of racial questions, but I just, I liked her. I read her on my own and liking sonnets more than I liked Langston Hughes at T.S. Eliot. So not because I could understand them, but there was just something about the sonnet form that was always unexpected and not just because of the language, but just the structure of it. So that's my, that would be in my DNA, but it was what would draw me to the sonnets. Uh, well, there's a bunch of great sonneteers throughout history. Uh, Ted Berrigan, John Berryman, uh, and so Wanda Coleman more recently, just to get to the point. I was always drawn to her sonnets, although she rarely read them out. And I don't think that she ever thought of them as maybe the best of her work. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, uh, I just thought they were amazing instantly. And so for many years, I gave a lesson. Uh, asking my class, my students, um, what would you call your American sonnet? This is her American sonnet. What would you call your American sonnet? So again, this is in my blood, thinking about this thing, I'm teaching it. Then uh, she passed away in 2013 and then 2016 happens. And so the, a few nights after the election, I started writing these sonnets and they were, so I, the sonnets scattered through all my books. And so it wasn't like, news to me. I've been writing longer poems in the book before. So just strategically, I was like, I'll write some shorter ones. I think I'll do a sonnet. Um, So I wrote a couple, but then her birthday came around that Sunday after the election. And I was like, I should do the assignment. I should do the thing I've been having my students do. Like, what is an American sonnet? And how will these become American sonnets? And I just attached American sonnets for my past. So the definition still is very much tied to how one defines American and how one defines sonnet um, as the kind of genesis for the poem. And I essentially needed that because I, I knew I was going to be distracted. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do my, what I love poems to, you know, my way of just kind of going wherever the poem wants me to go because what was about to happen with, uh, with Trump. If you just think about uh, Trump's intensity as a kind of passion, even if it's the wrong passion, there is no one that matches that passion on the other side. And the other side is not a political side. It's just a side of like morality. It's the side of good, side of leadership. So one of the most frightening things is like, where is our leader? So even when you lose a John Lewis or Elijah Cummings, um, I, I get a shiver. I would get a shiver if like Jimmy Carter died because, you know, we see these figures as like the, the guy, the guy posts in a moment like this, but they still don't radiate with the same intensity as Trump. And so I, I'm constantly looking around and saying, like, where are the people? Where are the where are the people that are sort of speaking back with the same intensity about goodness and intensity about morality and intensity about loyalty and intensity about harmony and intensity about truth and vulnerability, all of these principles. Where are those people? And so, you know, that's what I write out of. And so that, that's what I've been writing out of since November. That wanting to like prize those things and show value to those things because I don't feel like I'm getting it anywhere else. Terrence, I really would like you to read to us. I, we, I couldn't make up my mind. You know, I wanted you to read so much from all your books, but we're going to have a couple of readings in this um, podcast. So, so please read. So... I'll read one that isn't in the book. I, I feel like I wrote it in maybe one or two sittings, which is, you know, that does, as I said, I, I work on my poems for as long as they need to be worked on. I mean, I got a, I got a 200 page poem under my bed that I've been working on probably for a decade, you know, so I don't, the fun is to have something to do. So I'm never trying to actually finish poems. Um, but in this situation, I, I wrote a poem and then I, I sent it to the New Yorker and they, <laughs> they published it. So, this isn't, this isn't in the book, and it has a slightly different title. Um, so this poem is American Sign for the New Year, and I wrote it. I thought I was coming to the end of the sonnet series, which was not true. Um, and I was just reflecting on what still remains to be the period. And again, I, I think this 
points at the end to my ultimate optimism in the midst of like how dire things are. So American sign up for the new year. Things got terribly ugly incredibly quickly. Things got ugly embarrassingly quickly, actually. Things got ugly unbelievably quickly, honestly. Things got ugly seemingly infrequently initially. Things got ugly ironically, usually awfully carefully. Things got ugly unsuccessfully occasionally. Things got ugly mostly painstakingly quietly seemingly. Things got ugly beautifully infrequently. Things got ugly sadly especially frequently unfortunately. Things got ugly increasingly obviously. Things got ugly suddenly embarrassingly forcefully. Things got really ugly regularly truly quickly. Things got really incredibly ugly. Things will get less ugly inevitably hopefully. So, you know, again, if I'm a nerd for a minute and talk about turns, the Volta is the last word. I mean, like where the poem, where the Volta comes in the sonnet. So I'm like, it's just that last word is the, the turn that the whole poem hinges on, hopefully. Um, I want to follow up on what you said about starting to write these sonnets after Trump was elected with Ali Smith's question to you because that's what we do on the podcast, How to Proceed. Every author that I talk to has a question for the next author to create a kind of conversation. And here it is. Um, first of all, I want you to thank him for American Sonnets because what a book. Um, thank him for knowing that we have to break form apart by using form. Fantastic. But what I, well, my question for him is, in a standoff between Trump and poetry, what happens? Uh, well, can I, I could probably answer that question by also thanking her for all of the, the observations about the book. I mean, I am trying to see if you can break free inside of a form. So tell me about if, that. If the form is like this white patriarchy and white male intellect and creative prowess, the kind of intellect that gives us like democracy and all of that kind of stuff. And then if you find yourself in your body, a black man uh, whose descendants were enslaved by these intellectuals, um, how do you manage that system? Do you destroy that system? Do you just burn it all the way down to the ground? These days, I think that's what people think of the option. I don't think that. Um, or do you figure out um, how to function within that, how to like get things to bend in order to change them versus like shattering them where possible. Um, or is it like a window pane? Like if you just break all of the glass and leave one shard, is that enough to give people a sense of what that history is? So I say all that to say like my engagement with the sonnet is trying to like see if you can get free inside of a system that really didn't think about you when it was made. Nobody's thinking about black people writing sonnets when people were writing sonnets. So that answer comes back to this to this question of Trump versus poetry. I would say you got to ask about time. It's about how much time do we have here? Ultimately, poetry wins out. But how long is that going to take before it wins out? And the way that it wins out is so much more quiet and so, so much more intimate than the way what Trump thinks language is for wins out. But in the short term, it looks like someone who's sort of has almost disregard, well, a, a clear disregard for language, um, which is to say that poetry can change, that language can do something. Uh, it seems like that kind of knuckleheadedness, weaponizing of language seems like it's super powerful. But, you know, if you believe, like, if you know what gaslighting is, I mean, anybody that's been in a relationship <laughs> knows what the notion of gaslighting is. You would just have to say that that's essentially what it seems like in the immediate term. They're trying to convince you that. When you say a word like love, that's not what you mean. That's gaslighting. And so that's someone using language and then saying what I said is not what I said. So in the short term, it seems like that's winning out, but it's really not. Poetry wins out much longer than that because poetry asks you to trust, you know, some combination of head and gut, uh, 
mind, body, soul. I just think it's one of those places. There's so many overlaps, reading between the lines, but also reading the lines themselves. Poetry rewards that kind of thinking. And so it does win out, but it does, it doesn't win out in the same kind of like glamorous, bombastic and ultimately violent way that Trump is wielding it, wielding language right now. You talked about form and Ali talked about form also. And I wanted to ask you about form um, because you've always been experimenting with form and playing with form, seeking refuge in form. Um, and a big part of form is constraints. And you've off, I mean, you are a writer, a poet who obviously imposes constraints on yourself. So can you tell me about why you actively seek constraints And what does a constraint, what, what does it mean, a constraint? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I have all these kind of categories for <laughs> my views of the world. So the metaphor for my notion of constraints would be, I know every country has different kind of speed laws, but I would say here in America, I feel like if I'm doing 10 miles over the speed limit, I don't know how that converts to meters. So it's sort of like you're just barely breaking the law. You're not, so there is a, like here, if you do, We're told, the cop told me this one time, if you're doing like 15 miles over the speed limit, they'll stop you. But 10 is almost not worth it. Like the penalty for that is not quite worth it. So that's the area I like. I like that area where the cop is sort of having to make a decision based on context versus making a decision based on law. And you even drive in the car making a decision like, well, sometimes there's nobody else on the road. I think I'm going to do 10 miles over the speed limit. You know, maybe I'll do a little faster in this context. So that's just like, that is the kind of way I think about form and it's the way i think again about like the way people relate to each other that it's contextual it's um let's see what the moment looks like versus like general rules and i mean in the most philosophical sense i think we already know that's true anyway you don't kill people but we have wars you know these kinds of questions of like well it seems like the way the world works is in fact by looking at the particulars of things versus the generalizations around things and so so that reverberates in all kinds of ways i think um But that is my interesting form, that, that it has, but we know where the borders are, so you know how to cross them. But if there are no borders, if there's this like anarchy, it's just hard to know what shape you're holding. I do believe in, you know, having some kind of like <laughs> dimensionality. So um, even the notion of poetry is like, well, the more density and the more kind of nuance and metaphor a word has, the more shadow it casts, the more form it has, figurative language, the more figure. It has. So I just feel like these principles just reverberate across all kinds of ways of thinking. Um, but the notion that like, yes, you do need laws. I believe that. Again, if I grew up playing sports and in military, I'm not going to be a person who's like, now nah, laws wrong. You, I mean, I, I extend that even to, again, notions of relationships like uh, compromise around power. What I was thinking this week was that, you know, Trump has confused the relationship between capitalism and democracy. So This is just a, a thought about confusing terms, confusing terms like uh, power and popularity or success and happiness. These are all the kinds of terms that, that Trump kind of doesn't see any distinctions between. And so that's one of the things that irks me about him all the time, because I'm like, well, those aren't, you know, they're different really. Think I mean, we know the obvious mistakes that he makes, but it's just like evidence in a certain kind of thinking that like popularity is the same as love or that popularity is the same as democracy. Uh, or that money and wealth or good business is the same as like loyalty and friendships, you know, um, that that's what team, team, I mean, it's just obvious that he doesn't think in those terms. So. So Trump is not mentioned at all in the collection, American Sonnets for My Past and Future right. Assassin. Trump is not mentioned by right. name, but you say that sometimes he is the you of the poem. Um, right. And there are several poems where he appears in some way or another, and I want you to read uh, one of my favorite Trump poems. <laughs> Again, what I'm doing when I'm writing these poems is just, if I thought this energy was elsewhere, I would go get it there, if you follow me. If there was some voice speaking this way in the public arena back to Trump, I think I would be able to write poems like the sort that I, you know, I write a poem about tree frogs. I would write a poem about... Um, my family, let's say. So that's the place I always want to be. But in the absence of like any kind of like this vacuum of people really getting at him the way that he seems to be sort of poking at, at everything that's the opposite of him. So sometimes that's what these moments are. 
Um, and even like to know how narcissistic he is, that, that's why I'm like, I wouldn't put his name in the book because he'd be looking for it. Not that he would ever read poetry, but to me, that's the same kind of gesture I mean of like sticking your tongue out. I mean, it's, it becomes scholarship too, but it's also something really basic about like, well, that's how I feel. Why would I say that? I've never called him the president. I, I never will. You know what I mean? I just call him Trump. And so in my livelihood, that's how I, I mean, my life, that's how I'm living. And so the poems are just trying to catch a lot of that kind of energy. Um, so you can hear him in this echoing in it in the way that he's always echoing everything these days. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. The umpteenth thump on the rump of a badunkadunk stumps us. The lunk, the chump, the hunk of plunder. The umpteenth horny, honky stump speech pumps a funky rumble over air. The umpteenth slump in our humming democracy, a bumble bureaucracy with teeny tiny wings too small for its rumpled dumpling of a body. Humpty Dumpty, Frumpy Sue, the umpteenth honk of hollow thunder, the umpteenth believe me, the umpteenth grumpy, jumpy retort, chump change, casino game, tuxedo, teeth bleach, stomp speech, junk science, junk bond, junk country, stump speech, the umpteenth boast stumps our toe. The umpteenth falsehood stumps our elbows and eyeballs, our nose and woe and wows and woes. Actually, with that last line differently, you know, I should have said, whoa, wow, whoa. <laughs> I said the woe at the end, and that's how I'm feeling today. Whoa, whoa, stop. That's how I feel right now. <laughs> Thank you, Terrence Hayes, for reading. Thank you. Thank you. There are about a million things I want to pick up on uh, in the conversation already. Sure. So I wish we had, you know, five hours, ten. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about places. Uh, just this beautiful quote by Alice Munro. She writes, something had happened here. In your life, there are a few places, or maybe only one place, where something has happened. And then there are all the other places, which are just other places. And I wanted to ask you about your relationship to place also in your writing. I mean, do you consider yourself a Southern poet? You, you said you grew up in the South, partly. And then your two last cities are Pittsburgh and now New York, So you have more than one place, or do you have only that one place, and then there are all the other places? How do you think about place or, in your writing? I, I think of place uh, the same way I think of borders and, and, I guess, form even, which is just like blurry lines. So I even in the places that I'm from, I was even now when I go back to South Carolina, nobody looks at me like I'm from South Carolina. They're trying to figure out where this guy come from. Um, so that was my experience even growing up of being in a place, but also feeling not quite linked up with that place. So, yeah, I mean, we again, the military part is that in our roots, I moved around quite a bit. Um, we, I hadn't lived anywhere by the time I got out of high school for more than like three or four years, even though I was I guess that was a longer stretch. We've been in South Carolina, but we anyway. So, yeah, I guess my attitude about place is that um, it's best to be from a lot of different places. I wonder about that now that I'm older. You know, I think even my kids are sort of kind of thinking about what that means because I raised them that way. Like they, um, they know that they have family in these in Ohio and they have family in the South, but um, their relationship to those places, I, I feel like maybe there'll be some kind of conversation I have to have with them because I feel that way. Like I'm just in between places, so I don't feel like I have any real definitive place. Um, I mean, it's like to float in the space between, I mean, these are things that I, I think about like as a, as a good space to be, the space where you're merging things and you're synthesizing things. So many years ago when Natasha Trethewey wrote Native Garden, we were at a reading and she read and I was like, oh, that's cool. I think I should meditate on what the South means to me. Um, and so even when it comes up, I am thinking about it as a place that I'm returning to or coming back from. Um, But the place that I grew up, I mean, the place that I lived the longest uh, in South Carolina from like third grade to 10th grade, 
there was like a um, horse farm down one road. So people would ride horses through the back. There was a lake down one road. There was all of these woods that were undeveloped that we would go into and play. Um, so I never thought of that as unusual that I grew up in a you know fairly pastoral place. I mean, it just didn't show up in the poems. Um, because I'm mostly interested in people, you know, I guess that's one way to answer this question. Like when I'm interested in the dynamics of the people in those places more than those landscapes. But as I've tried to like, you know, mature and challenge myself in different ways and ask myself different questions, um, those, my response to those things change. So again, if I hadn't been writing about place, then I decide, oh, I I think I got to write more about place, you know, and continue to think about what that means for me. But my core self is a person who just sort of, straddles places uh, a foot in multiple communities and so even in graduate school you know i was hanging out with you know rappers basketball players scholars musicians uh, obviously my 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 classmates and i just felt like i had to kind of put these places together because i just needed to find all my interests you know like when i'm hanging out with the basketball players they're not going to want to talk poetry so much even though that's all i want to talk about hanging out with the musicians they're not going to want to sort of talk about what lebron james did last night but i'm like yeah i, I was watching that too you know and so i'm hanging out with the writers and i'm like well if you listen to mf doom this is really interesting music there so i feel like i'm always trying to like create a kind of like at least intellectual or emotional place um that satisfies all these different kinds of terrains you mentioned the word between and you said that that has significance for you mm-hmm. can you say a little more about that Yeah, well, that book is To Float in the Space Between, and it's a book looking at the life of this American poet, Etheridge Knight, because he is really the only poet, when I kind of look over the canon, who represents what I think is best for a poet to be, which is a migrant, nomad, uh, fluid, open to all spaces. No, no, like, I don't want to hang out with the experimental poets. I don't want to hang out with the spoken word poets. If that's your attitude, you're just losing out. And so the only poet that seemed to really crystallize that for me would be someone like Etheridge Knight. We should always be between, you know, when I talk about my own work, I mean, this is why I sent y'all what I sent. All I ever really am thinking about is like the next poem I'm going to write and the last poem I wrote. So my, my ideal space is always to be between those two moments of like a poem is coming and a poem is finished and I can just do like that. Um, I hardly ever do readings where I'm not trying out something new that I have written, but that only is possible if you're just sort of open to everything, if your attitude about what language and what poetry and what sort of the universe can give you, if you're open to it all, yeah, you'll be writing all the time. I mean, it's not going to be great stuff, but you just be trying things all the time because you're just open to all of the new things that, that just kind of happen naturally in the world, I think. You've described poetry as both a refuge and a weapon. So these are two very different things. I mean, can they be both? Can poetry be both? Yeah. Um, more than refuge, I, I say this to my students, it's more like a tool than a weapon. So it's like the idea that poetry is a tool for unearthing things and for building things, the way that we think about tools. Um, it's a, There's a utility to it but it's also a weapon. And we can, as I said, it's easy to see the way that it can be weaponized, but it's true. Even though Trump is perverting it, the notion that language can be a weapon is really, really obvious. And so I say between those two spaces, uh, is that's how I use it. Sometimes I am using it to fend off hate. I am using it to fend off oppression. I'm using it to fend off stupidity and sometimes using it as a tool to like unearth my own stupidity or unearth my own shortcomings. So those are kind of, you know, different utilities and different kinds of forces for it. But yeah, sometimes it's a spear. Sometimes it's a shield. Same kind of idea that the shield is a defense and the spear is something else. But I, I say this to my students in the first day of class, like this is how we should think of it as that that's what it's here for. Poetry. <laughs> that's what it's here for. But does it have that function, though? Literature? Uh, it's, a, it's a personal question. I mean, not for everybody, but nothing has everything for everybody. So for the people that it does, and, you know, all I'm doing is presenting people, not just students, but audiences too, with the possibility that if you feel something, um, I mean, it's why I'm a poet, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not interested in having a million people be interested in my work. I don't do any social media. I don't try to grow my audience because I know it's not for everybody. 
And I'm really fine with that because, again, I like small groups anyway. <laughs> so uh, I would resist any kind of thing that would like have just mainstream people superficially understanding it. So people tell me things differently, including my father. Like people think that I'm I have a totally warped sense of like how many people read my poems. But I say, but I prefer that. I prefer to think of it as like just a few people know what I'm doing. I actually do think that not that many people really get half the stuff that's going on in the poems. Sometimes if a class is looking, maybe they can pick up on some of the stuff. But that's fine because, again, the intimacy for me is to be using it in these ways. Tool, weapon. You see me try to use it as a weapon in the badunkadunk kind of thing. But again, there are other poems that I think you see me using it for, you know, for something else. And so it's it does that for me. And I present it to the universe and say, like, anybody that hears that frequency, I'm happy with that, even if it's just one or two people, um, it's impossible for me to know how many people are hearing it. But, you know, if one or two people are, are feeling it, um, I feel it. And, you know, I, sometimes I get it like in that question, in Ali's question, I feel like, oh, okay, sometimes people know what I'm doing. Is it only writers that know what I'm doing? Is it only poets that know what I'm doing? Uh, is it only people who pay attention that know what I'm doing? So these are the questions that make me say, I don't know if it's true for everybody. It can't be true for everybody, but it's true for some. Have you ever worked with a translator or someone who's translated your poems? People do, but I just, I would only be interested in that if I cared anything about like the poems by the time they really got to books. So people have come to me and said, can I, you know, translate your poem? But do I read them? I mean, you know, it's, can, do I know, could I even understand it in another language? Or do I just trust that if someone comes along and they're interested and they say it in a certain kind of way in an email or in a conversation, I'm like, yeah, sure, do it. You know, the poem's there for you to do what you want to do with it. It's the same principle when you send it out to the world. People do what they want to do. So if you want to translate it, go ahead. I'm going to ask you to, um, if you could please read the poem that starts with side effects include dry spells. Sure. So this poem is just one of those moments where even though the book has been published, something has happened that has made me want to just like vent and give it some shape. Um, so that's what this poem is. Uh, you know, because mm -hmm. the first line, it was written before the pandemic. Right. But the first line uh, is very prophetic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, it is. I, I think that sometimes about, about a lot of the poems, even when I said that about the American signer for the new year, man, things got ugly incredibly quickly. So when I say a line like that, I'm not thinking about adverbs or the sound that moves through it. That's just a sentiment. That's just something that I thought. Things got ugly really quickly and so that becomes a thing that's still true and so it's true for this moment so this poem is like that too it's really me walking around and just saying like what are going to be the side effects of this even if this guy goes away how long will he be in the system how long will the system still be trying to get over this terrible illness slash disease that has sort of beset it right now um so again yeah all the kind of metaphors do continue to resonate even when it's as literal as like a cough because of the coronavirus. Okay. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. Side effects include dry spells, dry coughs, dry eyes and crying, photosensitivity, blurred vision, trouble sleeping, trouble with gravity, cold feet, weight gain, weight loss, hair loss, Blood lust and blood loss, memory loss, loss of appetite, belly aches, headaches, heartaches, backaches, bruises, blueness, redness, whiteness, discoloration, itching, wrinkling, slouching, lying, backbiting, a taste for metal, a taste for meddling and mixed messaging. A taste for witches brews brewed by the motherfuckers who slew all the witches. Side effects include blockages and blockades, a blockhead of state your business as usual, a blockhead strong arm of the law, a warhead shotgun and point and shoot, down fallout shelters. Side effects include nausea, dizziness, numbness, dumbness, dementias, deletions, leeches, leches, hexes. Hoaxes, hocus pocuses, and if there is justice, spiritual, moral, federal, state, and local charges. So that just still remains true. Uh, I see, you know, all kinds of things that are in there. Um, 
blockages and blockades that, you know, stay your business, all the kind of police state, the stuff that's going on, the protest. So like, what are the side effects of this kind of leadership? So the poem is true because the questions are really true questions. And we're seeing those side effects um, across the board, across the board. And for me right now, everything that's happening is a side effect of this kind of uh, person, this kind of, uh, it ain't presidency, you know what I mean? It's something else, but everything we're seeing is a side effect of that. I want to switch gears a little bit because uh, you are also a visual artist. You've mm -hmm. drawn all your own book covers and um, one of your books of poetry is called How to Be Drawn. It's one of my favorite of your books. And how does the visual artist and the poet in you collaborate? Do they argue? Do they inspire each other? Do they give, take? Well, this will be in league with what I'm sort of talking about, like a disruption and ongoing questions that I might have. So in How to Be Drawn, that was me beginning to think of this question that you just posed to me. Like, what is the relation for me? I've always drawn. I've been drawing since I was eight years old. I still paint. I take Before quarantine, I was taking like a figure drawing class about twice a week. So I just have stacks and stacks of things. So in How to Be Drawn, there's a poem about how to draw a perfect circle. That's about me. Uh, doing blind contour drawing. So I was beginning to ask that question, but I couldn't get to those questions because I was so obsessed with what was going on that I had to write these American sonnets. Um, but when I'm not writing them now, I am back to that question. So much so that like the first thing I did when we had quarantine and we started doing Zoom readings was trying to incorporate all of the visual stuff that's always been a part of my work. I've always drawn as a way of thinking about poems, but I've just never had a way to show it. So. Uh, and maybe the next book will have some of that in it. So I've just been trying to use this format, the Zoom format, as a way to kind of show images. Or so I also make videos sometimes. Just, again, never anything. It's not like I post it out to anybody or tweet it to people or put it on Facebook. It's just a way that I think. So I have a Vimeo page that there's like videos I've made of thinking about other people's poems, usually um, different kinds of things that are happening. And um the drawing and uh, other kinds of manifestations of that. So I'm now trying to just figure out again, what that question means for me. So there you have it. I'm not, I don't, I'm not sitting on a very specific answer instead of saying like, it's an ongoing question. I too am always asking myself, what's the relationship between, you know, language and visual for me, because they are mostly simultaneous. I just don't distinguish them. It's just, I'm just always trying to make something. I'm always trying to record something. I'm always trying to see something and, always trying to pay attention. So those are the governing principles. You've quoted uh, the artist Lucien Freud, who said he wanted to make the paint equivalent to flesh. Does the same go for, for writing poetry for you? Yeah, I like Lucien Freud. Um, I do think of that kind of principle. I mean, I, I, I would like him because he's interested in the body, because he's interested in flesh. And so for me, I am like figurative language. That's what it is. It's a figure. It is... Uh, a kind of being it's a kind of shape it's got some form to it it casts a shadow so i am trying to make language substance um i talk about that in the same way music is substance as well so i'm trying to give it the same kind of body that that has even if that you know that doesn't cancel out mystery i, I want it to be clear but i also want it to have you know something that throws a shadow or throws room for you know some other kind of dimension of what it's doing You mentioned you had a daughter. I also have a daughter, and she took a uh -huh. an online writing workshop, and they read you. They read poems cool. by you, and I asked my daughter if she could ask them because I said I would be talking to you if mm -hmm. she could ask some of some of the the students if they had questions for you, and I would ask them. Cool. So I chose okay. one question, and this is from uh, her name is Maddie Whitehead. I think she's mm -hmm. about seventeen, and mm -hmm. she asks you. Was there a central moment in your life when you decided you would become a poet? And I think the central moment in your life, I like that. I like that in that question. So for many years, my answer has always been like, I'm still becoming a poet. Like it's sort of like a painter is only a painter when he paints or when she paints. And I think of a poet as only really being a poet when he, she, they are making poems. Um, so what that means for me is that I'm always, as I said, in the process of trying to think about 
what a poet can be. Um, I know there's a kind of romantic notion of what a poet is. I guess I just never, whether it's because of my body or because of whether it's my family, the way people sort of have seen me, I just never saw myself in any kind of romantic sense of what a poet is. So I just have always thought about it as aspirational, like Lucille Clifton, I know she's a poet. Um, Larry Levis, Sylvia Plath, those are poets. Biggie Smalls, Tupac Shakur, no. Biggie Smalls, yes, a poet. And so I know it's a kind of aspirational goal. What does that mean? I, I mean, I know this high school kid, so I don't want to make this a super dark thing. But the relationship between Sylvia I, I Plath I think high and, school high school kids are pretty super dark or able to take it. So Okay, so, right. So go ahead. Hart Crane, Edgar Allan Poe, Biggie Smalls, Sylvia Plath. I'm just going through everybody every 50 years listing them out that way. Um, that there are consequences or kinds of darknesses to what is a poet supposed to be. And I generally try to resist those things. So that's not to say that I'm not that. Um, so for example, this is going to be a very explicit thing. Like I know that not if the book isn't for everybody, like if a poem has motherfucker in it, or sometimes there's like other kinds of languages that are in that book. So I'm always excited to hear the high school students are reading it. But you know, when I'm writing those poems, I'm, it's just maybe I'm writing to my shadow. I'm never thinking like, is this going to be appropriate for anybody as I'm writing it because I'm trying to work things out. So there's all kinds of questions in there. There's sexual poems that come up inside of the book, but that's still me saying, but that's what a real poet does though. That's what Sylvia Plath does. That's why she ain't with us. That's what Biggie Small does. Like they have to lay it all on the line. Heart Crane. So I'm just, again, at Rallin Poe, if you just think about the relationship between like the poets who go too far uh, or pay us a different kind of price for living at that kind of intensity. So I'm here and I do believe in order and I do believe in time. I'm always setting that's why I need form because I mean, it's like Wind in the Box. It's the title of one of the books. Like without some kind of shape for myself, I feel like I would just burn up. I think I would. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I say some of these things for like very real tangible reasons. So I, I, I have to think of a poet as the thing that I'm trying to get to because I feel like the if I was a poet, I would just evaporate. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's a certain kind of intensity that we aspire to, a certain truth, a certain beauty, a certain presentness that we aspire to, um, if that's what a poet is. I just have never thought that I've ever like achieved anything like that. So I'm just always trying to get there. Um, I just tend to think that it's uh, poets write poems. So I ha as long as I'm writing poems, I'm moving towards what can be a poet, but I'm always afraid someday maybe I won't, you know, I'll do something else and then I won't be a poet. I'll, I could be a professor. I could be a, you know, a novelist. I could be an essayist, but if I'm not writing poems, I'm not a poet. So, so there's never been that moment. I've had it to make it a very simple answer. I've had external signifiers like the publication of a book of poems that would suggest that I was a poet, but I've never felt at those benchmarks. It, there's never been a prize or a, um, uh, a degree or a job that has made me finally be like, okay, now I'm a poet. I still feel like it's something that's just around the corner. Maybe it's a lifetime. Maybe you don't know to the end of it that you can say, oh, I know I'm, I'm, that was a poet. Hence this thing about like these, these figures that died, like they were poets when they died. So they get to be poets forever. Um, but not all of us sustain that ability to just be poets, you know, consistently all the time. That's what I, that's what I would like to be, you know, while I'm living, you know, always a poet. Scandinavian listeners might not be familiar with Kave Kanem. You, can you tell us or tell me a little bit about it? Um, so I was there at Kave Kanem from the beginning. Toy Derricott was my teacher at the University of Pittsburgh, where I just went, you know, after basketball and just went to Pittsburgh to write poems, partly because I had met her. Um, but essentially, they had this idea of like bringing black poets together and having them just share poems and do workshops and talk about their poems. And I was talking to some UK poets who were trying to do their version of Kaveh Kanem. And I said to them, but, you know, if you do this, you probably have a black prime minister in 10 years because it was about 10 years. Like Kaveh Kanem starts in 96 and 2008, 12 years later, there's Barack Obama. So to me, I'm making a bigger statement about 
the implications of like bringing black people together to be artful. And if you think that like those kinds of impressions are not only happening in other genres, but happen very specifically in the genre of poetry. Um, so at this point, Cobb Economist had so, I mean, no organization could have had as many um, Pulitzer Prize winners associated with it come from. Tyan Jess, Greg Pardlow, Natasha Trethway won the first book prize, Tracy K. Smith. What happened at Cobb Economist should be like a signal for all groups that like what will happen if you put yourself in a space where you can say exactly what you want to say and have people both challenge it, uh, critique it, evaluate it and help you make it a more beautiful statement. So do you see what I mean? This is my lesson from Cobb Economist is that like those kinds of communities where you, poet, feel safe the way family feels safe. Feel safe that someone says to you, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you put that in a poem. You need to change that. And you feel like that comes from someone who can really say it to you. That's going to always be good work. That's always going to be a, a good outcome. And Kyle Economy is evidence of that. Wonderful. We have to wrap up soon, but I'm going to ask you to read uh, the one that says, I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison. Okay. American sonnet for my past and future assassin. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream-inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here. As the crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. As the gym, the feel of crow shit dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart. Voltas of acoustics and instinct. Voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. You know what I was remembering as I was going through that poem? This is what I mean about like the stuff that, you know, like nobody, if nobody ever figures it out, it's fine like all the boxes. I think I was just trying to stack box images up in the poem. So there's a poem where I'm using orange. So in this one is like prison is a box. The closet is a box. The house is a box. The music box. Um, the gym is a box, like one big box. And then obviously I'll make you a box of darkness. So I'm somehow thinking about like how to put him in prison, how to put him in something that he can't get out of. The you being Trump, but also being like this notion of America. Like how do I hold this place? You know, it's not enough to love the country. It's not enough to love someone who thinks he loves the country. It's also not enough to burn it down. It's not enough to to destroy it. I mean, so like that's where we are. We're in a between space. And that, at least that's how I feel, you know, still feel about like what this place seems to do to us constantly is make us feel somewhere in the between, you know, and wanting to contain it at the same time. So in this podcast, we have a tradition, I guess, now that we've had you're our second guest. In a few days, I'll be interviewing Joyce Carol Oates. And I'm wondering if you have a question for her that I can pass on. Well, you know, I would see Joyce every now and again. It's been a little while, especially with the quarantine. I would see her around our career writing house at NYU when she would come in and teach classes. And I miss her now that she's gone. Uh, I would assume she's still teaching somewhere though, or I mean, that maybe is part of the question about if she was teaching or when she teaches and these young writers are in front of her, what's she going to tell them? You know, I'm still trying to figure that out too. How would she keep them focused? How would she, um, how would she distract them? How would she direct them? Um, because I'm wondering myself, that's the first thing I wonder, what is anybody going to do? with anybody under the age of 30, <laughs> because everybody at the age of 30, at least, is certainly going to be needing some direction and some help here going forward after the whole thing, coronavirus, Trump, the universe. So I just wonder what uh, she and her wisdom would do on that first day of class. So I'm going to ask you and end there. 
what will you do? What do you tell everyone under 30? Uh, so I want them both to engage the moment. I think one of the assignments is like a collaborative poem. Maybe another assignment is like an interview poem or something like that. So I'm looking for ways to distract my students by also having them engage things. I just think they need like rules. They're going to need boundaries. They're going to need something they can hold on to in the midst of like an approaching a uh, monumental election in the midst of like the trauma that has come out of, you know, these last months. So I, I suspect nobody's going to be able to write, but I say to you, you know, I do write. So I'm trying to relay that to people. Like I do, this is how I stay sane. So I'm saying to you, if you're, you say you're so overwhelmed that you can't write. And I'm like, no, that's when you want to be writing. You should be writing all of the stuff that overwhelms you. And then we'll help you give it some shape. We'll help you give it some kind of like shadow. So it's doing more than just being, you know, what it comes out as, but that's what you want to do. So I'm just telling them that like, you know, you want to both be distracted and engaged simultaneously. And I'm just going to see if I can throw a few things at it that'll do that. We'll see. Terrence Hayes, thank you so much for Thanks. coming to the Literature House this way. Next Thanks time, I do hope to receive you in person and that we'll meet and shake hands. Thanks. You know, it's always a challenge to try to connect in this uh medium but i do I, I feel your warmth and i appreciate the interest i also can feel the care and attention of everybody that's there with you so i'm saying like whatever this form is it still does relay the good energy that sometimes happens in these spaces so i'm glad that that's what i feel like now i feel like it was really good to meet you i feel like i've met you so cool and we have a special gift for our listeners today. So I want everyone to check out our show notes for a bonus poem read by Terence Hayes. And it's a reading for your ears and for your eyes. So check that out. Bye-bye. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Tune in for our next episode of How to Proceed, when Lynn Ullmann is joined by Joyce Carol Oates, 